Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the heavily contested and expensive runoff race in Georgia a week from today that will decide if the Democrats will have a 51-49 to majority in the United States Senate. Joining us is Jeffrey Lazarus, a professor of political science at Georgia State University, whose research focuses on Congress members' strategic behavior both as candidates and as legislators, as well as on legislative term limits, politicians' decisions to enter races for office, congressional conference committees, the bills members write, and pork barrel spending. With a record turnout of early voting underway, we will assess the incumbent's chances of beating one of the most ill-qualified and unprepared candidates ever for the United States Senate, who was handpicked by Donald Trump. Then we'll examine the decline and possible fall of Twitter, now owned by Elon Musk, who, in the name of free speech, is dismantling any content moderation as he invites right-wing trolls, conspiracy mongers, racist white supremacists, and anti-vaxxers aboard his platform under the fabricated complaint that conservative voices have been suppressed. Joining us is Michael Hilsig, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry, and currently he writes the twice-weekly column Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robert Barron's Railroads and the Making of Modern America. We'll discuss his latest article at the Los Angeles Times, Elon Musk's engagement with the far right on Twitter is out of control. Then finally, we'll speak with Dr. John Mueller, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor emeritus of both political science and dance at The Ohio State University. His books include Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, and most recently, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. He joins us to discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Why Putin May Endure, Powerful Leaders Have Often Withstood Staggering Defeats. And before we begin on this Giving Tuesday, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now, Jeffrey Lazarus, a professor of political science at Georgia State University, whose research focuses on Congress members' strategic behavior, both as candidates and as legislators, as well as legislative term limits, politicians' decisions to enter races for office, congressional conference committees, the bills members' right, and pork barrel spending. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Lazarus. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, the nation's attention is on Georgia with this Senate runoff race literally a week away from today, Tuesday. A lot of people are already voting. In fact, something of a, a record turnout so far. On Monday, 
there were 300,000 ballots cast in person, uh, which broke a record, a previous record of 233,000 votes cast in one day. And the turnout is nearly, so far, about 504,000 votes, which is 7.2% of Georgia's 7 million voting pool. So what would these numbers tell you, Jeffrey, in terms of what seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for people to vote? Um, yeah, it's great that turnout is um, looking to be so strong. One of the factors, however, that is making it look as strong as it is, is the fact that we're running on a compressed schedule. Um, early voting is shorter than it typically is. Um, normally, we would have two weeks of early voting. In this runoff, we only have one. Um, and so at least part of those numbers is because voters just have less time to um, uh, to get to the polls uh, than they did in the general election. And they did the last time we had runoff. Um, the, the state legislature passed a law um, following the 2020 election, shortening the, the runoff period from two months to one month. And, um, and so part of what's going on is just um, people are having fewer chances to get to the polls. And so I think um, they're trying to make sure that they get they get there, you know, when the opportunity is available to them. And if the the statistics indicate that 48% of early voters are white and about 38% of black, even though black voters are showing up at a higher turnout rate, does that tell you anything? Um, so it's a little hard to, to look into a crystal ball on that one, because on the one hand, um, in general, um, the, the sort of rule of thumb for Georgia politics is that um, the higher black turnout is, the better Democrats do. And I think the number that people focus on is around 30 percent. Um, you want to see black turnout higher than 30 percent. So 38 percent would be a super encouraging number. Um, but the that's slightly different from 30 percent, 38 percent of black voters are turning out, then 38% of the voters who turned out are black. Those are two slightly different things. Um, but um, the, the flip side of that is Democrats tend, at least in the last couple of election cycles, Dem Democrats are tending to vote early more than Republicans are. And so it could be that black, black turnout is going to be high in this election, or it could be that we're, it just appears high because we're still so early in the voting cycle and black voters are predominantly Democratic. So in the last election, which led to this runoff, Warnock led Walker by 37,000 votes out of almost 4 million cast in the first round. And of course, it was, he was just short of the 50% threshold needed. He's certainly not short of cash, Warnock. I'm not sure whether these are the latest statistics, but apparently he's got a cash advantage of something like $29 million on hand to Walker's $9.8 million. Is that up to date, do you think? Um, that's a good question. I have not seen updated funding numbers. Um, I can say just anecdotally um, that over the last, two or three days, I have seen a lot more um, Walker advert, uh, pardon me, a lot more Warnock advertising 
Den Walker advertising. Um, and so that would comport with the idea that Walker is not flush with cash at the moment. He was also AWOL for a few days, wasn't he, Walker? Yeah, the completely unsubstantiated rumor. Actually, you know what? I won't even say it. Um, I don't know where he was, but yeah, he was gone for a couple of days and just sort of off the campaign trail. Right. But the advertising is pretty nasty, and they're going after each other's wives. And I saw a couple of Warnock's recent ads, particularly after Trump announced that he was running for president again. Warnock played Trump's little pitch to vote for Walker in Georgia, I guess as a way to excuse the fact that most Republicans were begging him not to announce because if they thought he would screw up their chances for Walker in uh, Georgia. But nevertheless, Warnock played that announcement and (laughs) almost made an advertisement for the other side. I, I was puzzled by it. And then the more recent one that I saw, he's got a bunch of supporters listening to some of the ramblings of Walker's, which are pretty incoherent, and just shaking their head and saying, my God, what an embarrassment. Is that working to make it clear that this guy is out of his depth? Yeah, I actually think that it's, um, from a strategic point of view, it's a good move on Warnock's part to just show some raw footage because there, it's been more than once that Walker has been in front of a television camera and just spoken, you know, at depth about things that the listening audience has no clue what he's going on about. Um, so Warnock strategically needs to do a couple of things. One, he needs to make sure his voters turn out, but he needs to convince fence-sitting Republican voters that they either should stay home or he needs to give them an excuse to vote for him. Because you know these days, most voters are not going to go against their partisan leanings. So I actually think, and we'll, we'll only know once, once the results are in, but I think it's a, a smart campaign move on, in terms of Warnock, uh, showing these things to voters because um, you know, you and I, as a reporter and a professor, we see these things all the time, but the average voter, you know, th- a lot of these things don't reach the average voter. And so the more that he can publicize the perceived weaknesses of Walker, uh, the better off he'll be. But is there a problem that the Democrats have in as much as they've already won the Senate, at narrowly, of course, and it would make a big difference if they could get that extra vote to have 51-49 make a huge difference to their ability to get judges on the bench etc but the fact that that crisis is over in other words the democrats did hold the senate do you think that might depress the democratic vote no i actually think the opposite is true i think it's more an advantage for warnock than it is for walker Um, and the reason why is that in by any objective measure, Warnock is a better candidate than Walker is. And what Republicans were leaning on in the Walker campaign was, look, we know he's not the perfect candidate, but you need to vote for him because a vote for uh, Walker is a vote for a Republican majority. 
And they don't have that to lean on anymore, right? A vote for Walker is no longer a vote for Majority Leader McConnell. It's just a vote for this guy. And so Republicans now have to cast their vote purely for candidate Walker and for nothing else. It doesn't stand for anything else. And it's not going to make a difference for a lot of people. Very few candidates, very few voters think of politics in like the strategic depth that you and I are talking about it. But there are some out there who are thinking this way. And I think there are more Republicans who are going to be put off by the lack of pressure than there are Democrats, specifically because of that difference in terms of candidate quality. And given that Trump chose Walker and as minority leader Mitch McConnell remarked, they have a problem with the quality of their candidates. And clearly, you couldn't have a worse candidate. I mean, he literally speaks gibberish half the time, at least from what I've seen on the clips. And it's a little embarrassing, to say the least. Is there a kind of racist undertone that's being detected here, particularly, I would think, in the African-American community, that this is like a sort of cynical move by a white man to put in a token black man? Um, that is a really good question. I have not talked to a lot of people who have expressed that to me. I don't want to speak for a community that I'm not a part of, but that is not a sense that I have gotten in, in any of my conversations with folks. I, the one thing I can say is I have spoken with people who have said that they bristle at the suggestion that, that Herschel Walker may not be bright. Um, because if you watch him speak, you know, at first blush, I mean, it certainly appears that, that um, he may not be super bright, but you know, the, the flip side of that is he's a football player. He spent an entire career taking possibly who knows how many traumatic head injuries. He could be a victim of CTE. There's all kinds of things that might be going on in terms of cognitive capacity. So, you know, that is the one suggestion that I've gotten with regard to folks I've talking to on the race issue. Um, but other than that, I really don't want to, to sort of get, a, get over my skis a bit. Well, but Barack Obama did, and by the way, he's campaigning again uh, for yep. uh, Warnock. But in his initial round of campaigning, in the last round, he made the joke about being at the airport and then somebody said, oh, there's Herschel Walker. And then he said, well, why don't we have Herschel Walker fly the plane? What kind of uh, impact is the former president going to have, do you think, in terms of campaigning down there? Obviously, Biden's not campaigning because he's not popular, but it looks like as far as the Democratic bench is concerned, you couldn't have anybody more effective than Barack Obama. Uh, yeah, if anybody, you know, you're right, he's still incredibly popular in the Democratic base. Um, if anybody is going to uh, drive enthusiasm, it's going to be uh, uh, Barack Obama. Um, I think, you know, he can only help. I'm not sure how big of an impact he's going to have. Um, typically campaign events and surrogates and, you know, speeches and debates and things like that have, have a much smaller impact on race outcomes than a lot of people think that they do. Um, but to the extent that some people will be reminded of, you know, the runoff and get to the polls, um, who otherwise might not have, then yeah, um, having Obama campaign for you will be a help. I'm just not convinced it'll be very big.
The fact that uh, Herschel Walker is such a flawed candidate, though, it came up in a hot mic uh, moment when Majority Leader of the Senate was talking at the airport a while back with Biden, giving him an update on on how the first round of voting was going, and basically said, believe it or not, we're having trouble in uh, Georgia because for some reason or other, Herschel Walker is doing well. It, as though, how could a guy like that get any votes? And that is a question that, frankly, I have. What, yeah. does it, what does it say about us? I mean, are we becoming an idiocracy? I mean, the cynicism of Trump is so manifest here because Tommy Turberville, another one of his candidates, is not exactly a rocket scientist. And uh, No, he is not. Uh, so does this resonate at all? Has something happened in our politics in the, gen- in the broader sense that you would think that people would want to vote for people that were more qualified and skilled than they were, as opposed to somebody that's clearly just an ordinary guy, and in his case, maybe even less than an ordinary guy. Um, yeah, what we're witnessing is the preeminence of party. It's, it's really that simple. People say one of the biggest lies in politics is when you ask somebody, how do you decide who to vote for? And they say they vote for the person, not the party. That is absolutely not true. Um, voters are looking at which party a candidate belongs to, and they are voting for the candidate that um, belongs to their favorite party. And it is it is more difficult than possibly in all of American history to convince a voter to vote against their partisan identification. Um, and so what you have is a situation where parties can put up literally anyone. And, and in the case of Republicans, they are putting up almost literally anyone between Walker and Dr. Oz and Blake Masters and all the flawed candidates that you've seen in Republicans all across the country. And they're, they're still polling pretty close to what a generic Republican candidate would get in that particular state. Um, um, I think it's really telling. One of, one of the things that I checked out um, after November 6th was in, in Georgia, we elected eight statewide offices, I believe the number was. And I looked to see what every Republican candidate, you know, governor, you know, secretary of state, lieutenant governor, all of those things. Every Republican candidate for every office got between about 51.5% and 55%, except Herschel Walker, who got 48 and a half. And what that tells me <laughs> is that if you take a candidate and you throw every scandal you could think of, every perceived flaw you can think of, and put it on that candidate in a swing state, that's going to cost that candidate four percentage points. Wow. That's, that's how strong partisanship is. And partisanship in Georgia would involve the Christian right, right, which is totally puzzling that they would not support an ordained minister at a famous church as opposed to a guy that's had endless extramarital children. I think three kids that suddenly came out of nowhere that he had to acknowledge. I mean, he's not exactly a paragon of virtue, um, Herschel Walker. Yeah. I mean, again, yeah, it's puzzling on the surface, but the underlying factor is that everybody is filtering everything through their political party. So 
if you are looking at the two candidates through the prism of partisanship and you're a Republican, Warnock isn't an ordained minister of a church. He's someone who's trying to ensure that Americans have abortion rights. And he's someone who's trying to take away your guns. And he's someone who just checks all these boxes of things that Democrats are trying to do that you perceive of as bad. And so the most the thing that's most important to do through the lens of party is to stop the other party from doing the bad things. And that takes precedence. Well, Jeffrey Lazarus, I thank you for giving us an update on this critical uh, runoff election that will decide the extent to which the Democrats will have a have a majority in the Senate. And it's exactly a week away from today and all eyes are on your state. So thanks for the for the briefing. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Lazarus, who's a professor of political science at Georgia State University, whose research focuses on Congress members' strategic behavior, both as candidates and as legislators, as well as legislative term limits, politicians' decisions to enter races for office, congressional conference committees, the bills members' right, and pork barrel spending. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the decline and possible fall of Twitter. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Hilsig, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry, and he currently writes the twice-weekly column Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal and Modern History and Iron Empires, Robert Barron's Railroads and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is Elon Musk's engagement with the far right on Twitter is out of control. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Hilsig. Thanks, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And much of what's happening with Twitter, starting with the purchase itself, which clearly Musk had second thoughts about, tried to get out of, ended up overpaying for, and now he's stuck with it. So the assumption was that maybe he was stoned one night and decided to buy Twitter or whatever. But as it sort of degenerates into this kind of right-wing free-for-all and many progressives and liberals are being purged, which I'd like to talk to you about further, which you've written about, is it possible, though, Michael, that this is the real Elon Musk that's being unmasked, that these are his real attitudes? In other words, he is a kind of right-wing troll, I think there's no question that uh, this is the real Elon Musk, and I think it's always been the real Elon Musk. I I think he's sort of kept uh, a lot of these thoughts to himself. I mean, he's been out front about some of it, but he's always been sort of a willful, arrogant guy, uh, certainly since uh, Tesla and SpaceX became uh, relatively successful. So, uh, you know... I don't really think he's changed. I think his public persona has undergone 
a dramatic change, uh, mostly because of his behavior with Twitter. How much worse can it get, though? I mean, it seems to be spiraling into a kind of a sewer of, of hate and conspiracy. Well, it can get much worse. I mean, it can get worse until it completely implodes. Um, just uh, today or maybe yesterday, uh, Twitter announced that it's no longer going to uh, do fact checks or block anti-COVID uh, propaganda from from the platform. This is something that uh, makes Twitter, I, th I think, unique among social media platforms, most of the others of which have taken strong stands against COVID misinformation. Twitter is now not going to do that. Uh, that makes Twitter now more of a public health threat than it, than it used to be because it's not even trying to stem uh, the sort of uh, anti-science propaganda that's been afflicting us now for a couple of years. So it can get worse. I, I think at this stage, most users, including myself, have been unnerved by the idea that there's going to be more hate speech allowed on Twitter. But we haven't seen that much of it in our own timelines. I mean, I'm, I've certainly seen more spam uh, in my account, or my timeline on Twitter than I had before. But I haven't seen that much, uh, you know, n Nazi, Nazism and racism and anti-Semitism yet. But certainly there, there are indications statistically that that is becoming more of a problem. And as it becomes, continues to become more of a problem, Twitter will get worse. But before the recent election, Musk urged people to vote for Republicans. And apparently there's been a tremendous drop off in the numbers of followers for people like Bernie Sanders and other Democrats, and conversely, a huge increase in the numbers for Republican politicians. And of course, Musk has come out and said he wants to have a sensible centrist, and then he, <laughs> then he chose Ron DeSantis. I guess that's his idea of a sensible centrist. But So is he fiddling with the numbers to help Republicans? I don't know that he's doing that, but I think there's a natural phenomenon going on in which progressives or even middle-of-the-road users are abandoning Twitter. I mean, I've seen just, you know, from where I sit, uh, my my followers have gone down by a couple of thousand, uh, you know, which is almost, um, let's say, 10%. And I attribute that to the fact that people who followed me, who tended to have a liberal progressive worldview are leaving Twitter and canceling their accounts. Uh, and and I, I think what we're seeing is, as you mentioned, it's not merely our Republicans getting more followers, but it's really the, the, the loony Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's gotten, you know, a, a much bigger bump in followers than any other politician, any, including any other Republican politician just in the last couple of weeks. So are people on the left then moving to Mastodon? Well, some are moving to Mastodon. I've got an account on Mastodon. I think Mastodon uh, is emerging, at least at the moment, as the preferred alternative. But that said, I, I, I hope, but I don't really expect that Mastodon is going to become a viable or a, you know, a, an, 
an analog to Twitter anytime soon. It's going to take time uh, for it to build up uh, the sort of critical mass in user in, in user base that Twitter has had. And it works a little bit differently. So it's a little hard to see, um, you know, how it's going to serve users. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I have about a thousand users now, but the uh, the depth of discourse and the usefulness of Mastodon doesn't approach what Twitter was in its heyday. And in fact, what Twitter is so far still, um, I mean, Twitter is not as useful or pleasant as it used to be, but it's still uh, at this point, the leading game in town for those of us who used it, um, you know, to, to basically I, I, I used it to get story tips. I used it to get information in areas that I was personally interested in. And that was, you know, one of the great virtues of Twitter was that you could curate your followers. You could determine who you wanted to follow because you found other accounts useful or, in, or informative, and you could block or simply ignore those who that, that you didn't care about or didn't find useful or, or interesting. So you can still do that, but as more uh, educated, progressive, liberal users flee, that's going to hurt. Well, it's worth noting that Twitter was the social media platform that uh, helped bring about the Arab Spring in Egypt, but uh, it seems to be losing its uh, steam in terms of, uh, or at least it's becoming co-opted by the right. At the moment, you've listed in your article at the Los Angeles Times, uh, Michael Elsing, Elon Musk's engagement with the far right on Twitter is out of control. I mean, Peppy the Frog, which is this racist trope, he just tweeted that out. He went after Colonel Vindman, making references to the sort of invisible hand of the Jewish conspiracy and pulling the strings. of. Yeah, um, he's, um, I mean, the single most destructive force on Twitter today is Elon Musk. Uh, and I've written at least twice that if, if Twitter is to be saved, he has to go away. He has to stop tweeting. He has to give up uh, any decision-making authority over the platform to, uh, you know, to a CEO who comes to Twitter with credibility among advertisers and credibility among users. And Musk has to basically take a, a backseat and and just not be involved as anything but the owner. I, I don't think it's in his lifestyle to do that. But if he doesn't do that, then advertisers are not going to come back. Um, no, you know, at, you know, legitimate advertisers, consumer good manufacturers, um, are not simply not going to be comfortable having their campaigns on Twitter if they don't have some sort of predictability as to what's going to be posted next to their ads. Um, users are going to become uh, more disaffected. You know, he's basically going to burn the, th- the place down at both ends. You know, he's not going to get advertising revenue. He's not going to be able to sell subscriptions to anybody who, you know, wants to be part of this club. And he's not going to, he's going to lose a critical mass of users that any advertiser would want to address. So it's, it, uh, uh, I mean, we haven't seen it in the day-to-day uh, workings of Twitter. You know, it still functions, 
But, you know, one crisis is going to bring the, the site down and it's going to be very hard to recover. Well, already in terms of advertising revenues, he must be hurting uh, because he's lost Ford, Jeep, Chipotle and Merck and Apple. I mean, interestingly enough, Twitter itself, under its previous management, it wasn't making a profit, right? Well, in the last, I mean, call it 10 years, Twitter has had two years in which it was actually in the black. And I think that was 2017 and 2018, if I remember correctly. And that was in part because of sort of a tax, a tax arrangement that it made. But it hasn't, I mean, it could be profitable if it does things right. It's not been profitable in the last couple of years or in the years before 2017, 2018. So it struggled. Um, and, it, you know, part of that was it struggled to make a case for advertisers. Well, now it can't make a case for advertisers except for sort of fringe companies who you don't really you know, necessarily want on your platform. But yeah, I, I think it was Media Matters for America compiled the list and they found that 50 of the top 100 advertisers on Twitter pre-Musk have either, you know, stopped advertising completely or suspended their campaigns. We hear, you know, we get reports and op-eds and essays by um, people who are responsible for brand management in major companies who say that, you know, as an advertising platform, Twitter doesn't function for them anymore because they don't have the sort of they don't get the service that they need as advertisers to know if their ads are being watched or, you know, how they're how they're performing. So they're not coming back until they get a sense that it, this is a functioning advertising platform. And that's leaving aside the fact that, you know, a middle of the road, legitimate consumer company, it, you know, I mean, any brand manager who went to his or her boss and said, I think it's time to go back on Twitter would would be fired, you know, before the end of the day, because it, it, you just can't make that case right. Well, one of the more disturbing things that Musk is doing is that he's apparently listening to these far right trolls. They're advising him. He, like a lot of people on the right, have this obsessive inflated idea of Antifa being the kind of axis of evil uh, and this powerful force when in fact it's a decentralized amorphous group. But what he's doing now is he's deplatforming some prominent researchers of the, of the far right who actually, one of them is uh, a Chad Loader, is an anti-fascist researcher who's open source investigations of the January 6th Capitol Hill riot led to the identification and arrest of a proud boy whose face was masked who attacked a police officer. And so he's being deplatformed on the advice of some of these right-wing trolls who are obsessed with Antifa. They see Antifa under every other rock along with the Black Lives Matter. Right. Well, he's he's doing that. You know, he's he's got the circle of advisors uh, uh, whispering into his ear, he's bought completely into this idea that woke, you know, however, however you want to define it, that, you know, woke is a danger to the republic, you know. I mean, this is, you know, the, the conservative Republican talking point. It's, you know, there's no truth to it. There's no sense to it. 
Uh, and here is Musk sort of repeating it with, uh, you know, approving remarks. Um, uh, uh, look, I think from what we've heard about, you know, from people who've been in his inner circle or just outside his inner circle at his other businesses, um, you know, they say, look, this is a guy who needs to be managed and he needs to be managed carefully or he goes off the deep end. And, uh, you know, it, Places like Tesla and SpaceX, you know, there were entire platoons of middle managers whose job it was to, you know, keep Musk out of the way of the people who were doing the job and keep, you know, his cronies from interfering and, and also just, you know, protect the company from him so that people could do their work and then he could take credit for it. You know, nobody minded that. But uh, he doesn't have that at Twitter. So he's got this peanut gallery of venture capital cronies and right wingers who are telling him how brilliant he is and he's doing the right thing. And he clearly craves that sort of validation. He's not going to get it from the progressive, from, you know, progressive ideologues or, or, or Democrats. So he gets it, takes it where he can which is the right wing and Republican loonies. And he, you know, and he's marching to their tune. He thinks they're marching to his tune, but he doesn't get it. You know, he doesn't know how he's being manipulated and how he's going to lead this, this, you know, very high profile company into the, into the dirt. Well, from day one, it's always been a puzzle, Michael Hilsig, that, the world's richest man bought a public company, took it private in the name of free speech. Uh, <laughs> and then now on top of that, you have to add that he's running it into the ground or turning it into a kind of right wing. Yeah, or, right. Well, you know, his talk about free speech, you know, I always took a sort of lip service um, because he never really defined in any cogent way or consistent way, what he meant by free speech, and 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 he, he never showed that he understood the implications of taking off uh, moderation and restrictions. And every other social media platform has grappled with this and and found some answers and and created policies and methods and teams to implement serious policies on free speech that don't allow. Uh, trolls to take over their platforms. YouTube has had to go through this. Uh, Facebook has had to go through this. Um, you know, Google has had to go through this. And they all learned their lessons. And Twitter had been doing this as well, in some ways better than any of the others, but now that all has been dismantled. So, um, and this it's is, a, of course, free one thing that, it, well, it, it is, it's a free-for-all hellscape, which he promised explicitly he would not allow Twitter to become, but it's it's certainly trending in that direction. Um, and, you know, that's not going to comfort advertisers and it's going to drive users away. And Twitter is going to be weaker a week from now and a month from now. And if it makes it for a year, a year from now than it is today. And And, you know, the shame of it is if if he were to turn around, you know, do a full scale um, 
change tomorrow and and actually, you know, restore all these policies that he's eviscerated and bring people back and, and put people back in, in place, it's 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 not going to recover in a day. It's it's at this point, it's going to take months to get back to where it was if it ever does. Well, Michael Hiltzik, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, Ian, happy to do it. Good to talk with you again. Well, likewise. And and again, I've been speaking with Michael Hiltzik, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry, and currently he writes the twice-weekly column Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is Elon Musk's engagement with the far right on Twitter is out of control. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at the possibility that Putin may endure since powerful leaders have often withstood staggering defeats. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. John Mueller, who's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor emeritus of both political science and dance at The Ohio State University. His books include Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, and most recently, The Stupidity of War, America's Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Why Putin May Endure Powerful Leaders Have Often Withstood Staggering Defeats. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. John Mueller. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And of course, you've given us a lot of historical examples in your article at Foreign Affairs. And of course, some of the more prominent ones are the autocrat in Egypt and NASA suffered a humiliating defeat in the 1967 Six-Day War with Israel, and yet he stayed on in power and only died of a heart attack. And then you've got Saddam Hussein, who survived the disastrous eight-year war that he started against Iran in 1980, and also the 1991 Gulf War, which when he was pushed out of Kuwait, and he still survived that, and eventually, of course, was taken down in a subsequent ill-fated U.S. war in Iraq. So I guess the common thread, though, is that these people are dictators, as is Putin, who has a ubiquitous propaganda network. So how much is that a factor, the fact that they're they're dictators and they control the, the hearts and minds, if you will? Yeah, and they also control security apparatus, which is probably even more important. Uh, but it also happens in democracies. Uh, you know, the greatest debacle in American foreign policy history was in Vietnam when it collapsed in 55 days uh, in uh, uh, 1975. The next year, the man who presided over that debacle, Gerald Ford, ran for president. And the only time it even came up in the election uh, was uh, when he brought it up, saying, I came into office. We are still involved in a war. Now we're at peace. And, of course, we're living through one right now. 
the second biggest debacle in American foreign policy history is be the one, the failure in Afghanistan, I think. Um, and uh, while it didn't help Biden's popularity very much, um, mostly people are complaining about he didn't handle the withdrawal very well, not that he withdrew. Uh, and it, of course, it didn't come up very much at all in this uh, in these recent elections. So it's frequently the case, not always the case by any means, frequently the case that uh, people who start wars, debacles in wars or military actions um, can uh, continue to, to uh, uh, stay in office even after that. And I think uh, Putin, because he has a security apparatus, because there's no one really viable waiting in the wings or in the trenches, um, and I think probably can uh, has a good chance of hanging on there. Uh, so he may be with, be with us for a while, even if the war ends, and he uh, it, it proves to be even a bigger debacle than it has been so far for him. So when the war ends, though, that's a big question, because he's doubling down and he's attacking um, civilian infrastructure to make life miserable for the Ukrainian people during the winter, and the winter probably will slow the military activity down. So how long do you think can he last in the terms of his control uh, over well, the people and I, uh, without some kind of a an end game here or peace deal? He doesn't seem to be in the mood to accept defeat, obviously. Yeah, well, what he can do is, uh, this is my speculation, of course, right now things look very bleak, you know, in terms of the length, as, as you already suggested. Uh, and he is trying to wear down the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians do not seem to be being worn down. Um, you know, they're just using less electricity and uh, bottling their own water and so forth. Um, I think they're likely to survive uh, pretty well. And um, uh, so, so this war has to probably be settled somehow. And the key thing would be to get him to get to withdraw from Ukraine, maybe not the Crimea, but some of the rest of Ukraine. And it seems to me one possibility would be for him to say, well, I achieved my war game, well, my, my, my war goals. My war goal was to keep NATO from attacking Russia. It didn't attack Russia and it won't attack Russia. So therefore we've won. Um, and that argument basically that, that the war was, which I think is totally preposterous, NATO was not in no mood or, or, or position or it had no interest in attacking Russia. Uh, but that, that argument that they were planning to do so uh, has gone down pretty well in Russia so far. So he can complain, he, he can argue that he, he was victorious. They also argue in the, in the piece that uh, maybe we can nudge him in that direction by saying, get out and we'll do various things that shows we won't attack you, even though, of course, never had any intention whatsoever of doing that. One would be to sign a non-aggression pact or something, a non-invasion pact, um, with, with some sort of safeguards in it. Another would be to, uh, if he's worried about, uh, as he said at the time, about uh, NATO going, uh, Ukraine going into NATO, you can say, uh, you could say, well, we won't, we will sign a thing saying we won't let Ukraine into NATO for 25 years when you'll be 95. Um, and that might also work because, uh, and it's basically a no-brainer in the sense that uh, Ukraine is in such messy shape even before the war it's going to take 25 years to do enough reform in order to be able to qualify to get into NATO. So you're not giving away anything. And, and Zelensky has even said that, you know, people were telling him that before the war. Um, and the third possibility, which some people have brought forward, which is really, really an interesting one, would be to really settle the area, uh, work out a secure 
um, uh, uh, neutrality for for um, for Ukraine in the center of that, but be independent and maintain its own existence. Um, it would continue to hate Russia for 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 for, for a lot of good reasons, obviously, um, and it would be similar to the kind of thing that was worked out with Austria uh, after World War II in 1954 55. Um, in other words, uh, Austria has is neutral, um, has not joined any kind of alliance, um, and has you know lived pretty much happily ever after. And some poss a possibility of something like that, which is settle the whole middle uh, middle area of uh, Europe, would be a possibility. It seems to me, and then all those three suggestions I just made are uh, costless. You know, when the United States doesn't, and NATO doesn't have the slightest interest in invading Russia. Uh, Ukraine, as I pointed out, could get into NATO for 30, 25 years anyway, no matter what. Um, and uh, and uh, and the 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 other settlement is something that could be worked out. And would be good for everybody overall. So it seems to me that Putin could say that and uh, and uh, just keep going on. It's not clear he needs any kind of face-saving uh, um, measures because, as you pointed out, Nasser and and Saddam Hussein didn't have any. Um, they just lost. Uh, you know, the total war is a total debacle, and they just continued on. Uh, be, partly because they were autocrats and had this strong security system, and because there wasn't any real competition. That's not particularly good long term for the um, Russians, <clears throat> because as, as long as Putin is in power, I think there's going to be a strong tendency to not want to deal with Russia economically or any other way. And that's going to hurt uh, people just generally within uh, within within Russia. So the NATO heads a meeting and Secretary of State Blinken is meeting in Romania. And they're talking about what to do about restoring and the infrastructure that's being pummeled every day by Russian missiles, largely. Russia, the army seems to be stalled. The Navy and the Black Sea Fleet is, is pretty much out of commission. So all that Putin's got left is his air force, and, and he's apparently using taking the nuclear warheads off his cruise missiles and raining them down. But there's some question of what's left in the inventory. But yeah, in terms there's a, of, there's a lot of question about that. He's using up everything he's got. Right, but in terms of NATO's strength, I mean, it seems to have backfired on Putin. I mean, Finland, which has a, shares a long border, they're joining NATO. So is Sweden, and there does seem to be a some pretty substantial solidarity within NATO, except perhaps for yeah. Hungary. Yeah, it, it basically has been an incredible debacle. If he wanted Ukraine not to pedal toward the West, that's been a disaster. If he wanted the neo-Nazis, as he called them, namely Ukrainian nationalists, not to flourish, that's a disaster. If he wanted people to love Russia and the Russian language, that's been a disaster. Uh, just about everything he tried to do, uh, uh, except deter NATO from invading Russia, which was never going to do anyway, uh, has been a failure. So I suggest in the article you make it go down long-term in history as Vladimir the Vladimir the Fool, or there's there you know there's a guy along in the 15th century called Vlad the Impaler, and now maybe this one will go down in history as Vlad the Self Impaler. It's just been an, an, an astounding debacle. But my point is that even though the debacle is very clear to to everybody, I think certainly in the West, um, it doesn't mean necessarily that Putin would would uh, go out of office. The danger from the standpoint of the Russians also would be. Uh, if Putin isn't in there, Putin has provided a certain amount of stability. And while they may not like Putin, they can imagine a lot of things which are one hell of a lot worse than uh, than Putin. 
you know, namely like a civil war or something, you know, like the way Yugoslavia was, for example. Uh, and so that would also temper things. But anyway, it does seem to be that people are perfectly willing, as the United States was after Vietnam and after, uh, as it is now, after Afghanistan, to say, well, it didn't work. You know, let's go on to the next thing. What else have we got to worry about? Um, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's easy, to, it's, easy it's, it's very easily often, even though it seems disastrous at the time, and indeed is in many respects, uh, it doesn't follow that um, the uh, that uh, there'd be uh, a major upheaval overall. It can go back to the way it was before, which is better than total chaos, for example. Well, one of the ironies of Russian politics is that Putin is a kind of moderating force, as, as bad as he is. There are many, many worse people waiting in the wings, and the nationalists are are pushing Putin to the right, and they're absolutely bloodthirsty. They, they want to use nukes and absolutely burn Ukraine to the ground. And on the other hand, what liberal opposition has left, which is pretty minuscule, they've pretty much left the country. I mean, hundreds right. of thousands of young, talented young Russians have left. So that seems to be the situation, that maybe he's actually gaining strength by moving to the right. But he's got to pander to these people because their their aims, the nationalists, are completely unrealistic and not to mention bloodthirsty. Yeah, but being bloodthirsty and unre unrealistic means that you're unrealistic. Um, and I think the military, basically, the, the almost all the uh, military analysts argue that this is about all they can do. They can just hang on to the territory they've got. They can't take over the rest of Ukraine, much less invade, you know, Poland or something like that. Um, so you can be as bloodthirsty as you want, but uh, you come up against the hard wall of, uh, okay, that's a great idea, but it's impossible. Uh, and that's what I think is happening in this case. Um, it, it may be that the population, which is growing fast, I think, war-weary and war-weary, uh, will accept that. Uh, Putin is certainly a lot better than that opposition, obviously, overall. Uh, and over time, maybe things can be worked out. He can be eased out of office or... There can be sort of a civilized coup or something like that. Uh, but I think his chances of survival would be pretty good. That doesn't mean it's good for Russia. It's been a disaster for Russia. Uh, and that, that will continue, particularly as long as Putin is in office, as I said. Right. Well, the historical examples you give, though, in terms of Russia, uh, the war with Japan in 1904-1905, which was a humiliation for Tsar Nicholas II, but nevertheless, he survived uh, until 1917. Uh, right. And and then uh, the other example you give is uh, Stalin's disastrous war against Finland in 1939 to 1940. But then, of course, the other disaster for Stalin was when the Hitler-Stalin pact blew up in his face. I mean, he he really seemed to have trusted Hitler and, and didn't listen to his own generals and intelligence people that Hitler yeah. was going to renege on it. And then when the, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, Stalin went on a bender and was drunk. You know, thousands of Russians died as a result of the fact that there was nobody left at the top making decisions as the Soviet army collapsed. But there was nobody around to arrest Stalin. <laughs> right. So he, is that the situation you have in he Russia died, he now? Died, he, he died peacefully in bed in 1953, you know, uh, 13 years later, 14 years later. Yeah, there's also two more recent examples from Russia. Um, one is the uh, the uh, debacle in uh, in Afghanistan, 
It was started by Brezhnev when it's still the Soviet Union. Gorbachev, who had been part of that decision, though a very junior member, uh, t you know, found this thing was be a disaster and pulled out in 19, started in 1988 and then pulled him out completely by 1989. Uh, and uh, that was completely accepted by the Russians. Uh, everything they'd fought and died for, as with the United States and Vietnam, was down the tubes. And they basically, you know, he, Gorbachev was eventually forced out of office, essentially, but it had nothing to do with that particularly. The other example is from Russia to put in, in Yeltsin's era, 1990s. Uh, he started a war against the secessionist province of, of Chechnya in 19, uh, 1994. And it was supposed to be his military assured him, as they had assured Brezhnev, and as they apparently had assured Putin in the current case, that this would just be a matter of days and we'll be able to take over. And so they got bought, they fought about as well there as they've been fought, as they fought, and as they're fighting in Ukraine. Uh, and they basically fell apart and the war was going on worse and worse. And Yeltsin then worked out a humiliating agreement with the Chechens by 1996 when he was up for re-election and he won the election. So you got two cases there, the Russians doing the same thing that the Americans had done when they faced debacle. So debacle, and, and you talk about Stalin, obviously, it was debacle after debacle after debacle. You're quite right about all that. Uh, but the point of that is that he still stayed in power. Um, sometimes, you know, they are kicked out. For example, the junta in Argentina that started the Falklands War was, uh, was, was removed from office. And also, it should be said, Tony Blair, who had been part of the Iraq uh, planning in 2003, uh, was, was, then, was then removed from office. Uh, uh, peacefully, of course, uh, mainly by his own party. So sometimes it does blow up in your face, um, but uh, in many cases it doesn't. And it seems to be Putin's got in a good position to be in the survival camp, which is not necessarily good long term for Russia. Well, just in closing, then, John Mueller, where do you think, if we were having this discussion a year from now, where do you think it would be? Yeah, well, I, I think I'll punt on <laughs> that one. <laughs> Uh, what we're going to have, we're, we're, it's sort of a stalemate thing now. Uh, if the, uh, we haven't really talked about the Ukrainians, of course, and they're obviously central to this whole issue. Um, if they can continue to force the Russians out, they probably will continue to do so. Uh, but, but, but a reasonable conclusion is that they will uh, not be able to do that. Um, and uh, if, if that's the case, you're going to have something of a stalemate, in which case the kind of things I've been talking about might be something that... Uh, well, uh, would come up for consideration. Uh, right now, it doesn't look very good. No one's talking very, very much about negotiations, uh, including Putin in, in particular. Uh, but my argument is that if he does come to deal with it, it, it's possible he can deal with it. We can get out of this horrible war. Ukraine will have won in any, in any, by any reasonable standard um, and will be independent and will uh, eventually maybe even join NATO in 25 years. Who knows? Uh, and it will certainly continue to pedal to the West. Uh, so it, most of the things he was trying to do, he failed at. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to go down the tubes himself. But I, I, I just can't predict anything on that, uh, really, uh, very, very fully, nor can anybody else, of course. It sort of depends on what's happening over the winter, if the Ukrainians survive. There's a very good article in Foreign Affairs by Robert Pape, P-A-P-E, about uh, the difficulty of trying to break a people's will to fight. Uh, looking historically, including going back to the, you know, the London Blitz. 
Um, and uh, I, I strongly recommend that. It just, it's just, it's just bombing people doesn't mean you break their resistance. Sure. And the, Ukra the Ukrainians have shown they're very strong. Well, Dr. John Milner, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. John Mueller, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor emeritus of both political science and dance at The Ohio State University. His books include Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, and most recently, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Why Putin May Endure, Powerful Leaders Have Often Withstood Staggering Defeats. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305. I'm not